and open up your Bibles to John chapter 17 this morning. I'm going to read from verse 9 through verse 17. I pray for them, says the Lord Jesus. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Rather, I'm sorry, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Let's pray one more time together this morning. Heavenly Father, our God in heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we open Your Word today, mortals trying to understand the things of God. And we can't without Your help. We confess our belief in Your work, Holy Spirit, that You open the eyes of the blind and you give understanding to the ignorant. The ignorant, like myself, like my brothers and sisters, who need to know the things of God better. But we have the sweet promise of your word that your word makes wise the simple. So help us today, Lord. Be at work in our hearts, we ask. Grant me clarity in my speaking and grant grace to the hearing of it, of the, of the hearing of your word. Lord, we don't, we, don't want to, we don't want to hear the speech of a person this morning. None of us is interested in learning from a person. We want to understand your word better. So, be exalted in our time here this morning, we pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. So, last week, we looked at verse 11. And if you remember, the main point of verse 11 is where the Lord Jesus Christ prays for the preservation of His people, that, that His Father would keep His people saved, that He would keep them Christians that's what he means when he says in verse 11, Holy Father, keep through your name. If you remember, we said that the, the better interpretation for that is, Holy Father, keep in your name 
those whom you have given me. And we also saw that the purpose of being preserved by God was the unity of the people of God. It says that they may be one as we are. And that unity isn't just unity for unity's sake. The Lord isn't just praying, make them all to be friends and get along. You remember that it's a unity of goal and direction and activity. The, the Trinity as the united Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has a plan for the universe. That's the exaltation of God and the salvation of sinners. And when you and I, when believers are brought into that, when we're brought into fellowship in union with God, we're brought into that same goal. And that's, that's what we saw in verses 21 and 23. That the world may believe that you sent me. Um, that's, that's the whole purpose of unity. So this, this time we're going to look at verses 11 through 16 this morning. Um, which is basically the, the, second, the second part to, to last week's message. And, and what we have here is we have something of a sandwich, a sandwich of argumentation. In verse 11, we have the request, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Well, why? Verses 12 and 13 and 14 give us the reasons why. And then in 15, he repeats the request, keep them. You see that? Verse 11, keep them. Why? Verses 12 through 14, here are the reasons. Verse 15, the request again. It's a sandwich. You see that? Um, so so what, what he's doing in verses 12, 13, and 14 is he's praying the way that the Old, Testaments, that the Old Testament saints had prayed um, Back, back when they were alive. The Lord Jesus Christ is praying in the same way. He's building up His prayers with reasons to be, to be heard. He's going to give reasons as to why His prayer request should be answered. Now, some thoughts might be going through your mind at this point. Well, why does He need to give reasons for the prayers to be answered? This is the Son of God. Whatever the Son of God asks for, the Father is going to answer. And if, if that's what went through your mind, you would be correct. The Father doesn't need to hear the reasons from Christ as to answer, as to answer the, the prayer request. It's as good as done. But He's loading His prayer request with these, with, with these reasons so that you and I, when we see these reasons, we would be instructed and we would be encouraged. We would be instructed and we would be encouraged. We would be instructed in this way. We would be instructed to see, oh, that means when I pray, I should pray using Bible reasons as well. Um, like, for example, God, you promised in Psalm 50, you said, call upon me in the day of trouble and that you would deliver me, and that I would glorify you. God, would you fulfill that promise? That would be an example of praying with Bible reason. Does that make sense? And the Old Testament and the New Testament are loaded with those kinds of things. 
Praying the Bible right back to God. These Bible reasons for answering prayer. God wants us to pray in that way. The second thing is, not only is He teaching us how to pray, but He's also encouraging us. He's encouraging us that as the Son prays His prayer, the Father is certainly going to answer in the positive. Since He's loading it with these reasons, by the time we get to the end, you and I, as we're listening in on this prayer, we're, we have got to conclude, of course the Father is going to answer this. Of course He's going to do this. So, so that's the big picture. The big picture is Christ building His prayer with Bible reasons. Okay, and in the little in the in the in the little picture, what we're going to be looking at here today is we're going to be considering the theological nature of these reasons. We're going to be looking at them. And we're going to be seeing uh, who Christ is and what He does and seeing what we can learn from that. So, all that to say, long introduction to, to the title of Reasons to Pray and Reasons to Praise. Reasons to Pray and Reasons to Praise. So, um, let's look at the first reason. Why, uh, why is the Lord Jesus Christ praying this prayer? Well, the first reason is that there is a presence missed. Not, not presence like a Christmas present, but a presence like someone being with you presence. Look at verse 11. Now I am no longer in the world. We looked at this last time. The Lord Jesus Christ is about to go to the cross and then He's about to to ascend to heaven. And that is the first reason in His prayer. I'm no longer in the world. Therefore, Holy Father, keep in Your name those whom You have given Me. Okay? So, we looked at that last time. That's why I'm not going to spend any time on it today. But that's the first reason. That there's a presence missed. A presence missed. The second reason uh, bolstering His prayer is that there is a work begun. There's a work begun, and we see this in verses 12 through 13. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you have given me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you. In these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So let me give you the summary of these verses before we look at them in particular. The summary is, is, is what Christ is saying in verses 12 and 13 is, is He's saying, I have already started a work in their life. Don't let it go to waste. I've already begun to build something. Don't let it decay. And again, we're we're, spe- we're speaking in a human we're speaking in a human way here. Of course, the Father is not going to let it go to waste. He's not even slightly inclined to let it go to waste. There's not even an inkling in his mind to to think, oh well, maybe I will, maybe I won't. Christ is including this in his prayer to teach us. He's including these details to teach us. So, let's look at this. The first work that he had begun is he had begun to keep them. He began to keep them. Look at verse 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. And if you see, 
he, he's asking him, he's asking his father in verse 11 to do the same thing that he has already done for them in verse 12. Do you see that? Verse 11, Holy Father, keep in your name. Verse 12, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. I kept them in your name. Now let's take a little bit of time and think about this. Christ kept his disciples. He kept them. That means he kept them safe. He held on to them. He did not lose them. And quite literally, these words are fulfilled one chapter later, in chapter 18, verses 7 to 9, when, when the crowd came to arrest Christ, the Lord said, If you're after me, let my disciples go. And that specifically fulfills this passage. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. That was John 18, verses 7 to 9. But he also fulfills this spiritually. He fulfills this spiritually. So turn with me over to John chapter 6 and verse 39 to see, to see this played out. We're talking about Christ keeping his disciples safe, keeping, keeping their faith, preserving them, not letting them go. So the Gospel of John chapter 6 and verse 39 the Lord Jesus says, this is the will of the Father who sent me. The will of the Father. The will of the Father. In other words, this is what the Father wants. This is His aim. This is His goal. This is the will of the Father who sent me. Well, what, what does the Father will? That of all He has given me, I should lose nothing. Of all He has given me, I should lose nothing. Think about those words for a minute. All whom He has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Every last lost sheep. It is the Father's will that the Lord Jesus Christ not lose one. What that means is it doesn't matter where that sheep lives. If that sheep, if that sheep lives in San Francisco, California, if that sheep lived in Rome in AD 70, if that, if that sheep lived in Cambodia in the year 2023, it doesn't matter where the sheep is, it doesn't matter what time in history that sheep is alive. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all He has given me, I should lose nothing. Think about that. You and I, we have a, well, that will do mentality when it comes to our work. We just, we just do. It doesn't, matter, it doesn't matter how diligent you are in what you do. If you make a mistake, you, you might end up fixing that mistake. But if, if you make the same mistake like 20 times, you might let the 20th time slip. You might think, okay, well... That one's really not that bad. I could just continue on. But Christ, when he is when he when he is determined to seek and to save all that the Father has given him, he won't settle for less. If the Father has given him 90 million people, if he has given him 
two billion people, six billion people, he's not going to be satisfied as one is out. That's incredible. That's amazing. Uh, I was I was thinking about this. Turn over to John chapter 10. I think of John chapter 10 a lot with regard to this prayer. Look at verse 3. The Lord Jesus Christ speaking of Himself. He calls Himself the shepherd of the sheep. And look at this. John 10 verse 3. To Him, the shepherd, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear His voice and He calls His own sheep by name. By name. And that sheep's name is not number 327. That sheep has a name from the foundation of the world and the Lord Jesus Christ is not going to let that sheep go. He's not. It's the will of the Father that of all that has been given to Him should lose nothing. Nothing. Not one is going to escape. Look down at verse 16. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring. I must bring the other sheep. So, saints, when, when you get to worrying about, about someone missing out on hearing the gospel, remind yourself of verse 16. The Lord Jesus Christ has to bring in all of His sheep. He said it. Them also I must bring in. He's going to get them. He's going to get them. He's going to find them. They're not going to go unfound. But not only that, not only are they not going to go unfound, they're not going to ever be lost again after they have been found. Look at verse 28. And I give them eternal life. You know, if life can be taken away from you, it's not eternal life. But the Lord Jesus gives eternal life. And they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than I, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Once you've been found by Christ, you're not going to get unfound. You're not going to get lost again. He's, he, he's not going to let that happen. He's the good shepherd of the sheep. So, back in John 17 then, he says, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. I kept them in your name. Are you kept by Christ? Are you kept safe in the name of the Lord? But now maybe you have a question because you read the rest of the verse. You gave them to me. I have. Um, you gave. You gave me. I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now the son of perdition is Judas Iscariot, the one that is going to betray the Lord. And so maybe what is going through your mind? If, if we're careful readers of the Word, we think, okay, well, you said in the first part that you kept them all, but are you saying in the last part that you lost one? That is, 
And if, and if you lost one, if you lost Judas, what's going to keep you from losing me? It's a valid question. Okay, so let's look at it. Let's see, let's see how we can answer this. Did he, the, the, the essence of the question is, did Christ lo- lose Judas? Did Christ lose Judas? Well, what is Judas referred to here? He's referred to as the son of perdition. The son of perdition. What does that mean? He's the son of destruction. Okay, well, what about this son of destruction? It says that the scripture might be fulfilled. In other words, there are scripture passages in the Old Testament, Psalm 41 and Psalm 109, that prophesy that Christ was going to be betrayed by someone, namely Judas Iscariot. So the scripture had prophesied, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed. And he was. He was betrayed by his friend, Judas. So now let's back out and ask our question again. So did, so did Christ lose Judas? Well, no. Christ didn't lose Judas because from the very start, Judas was the son of perdition. From the very start, the scriptures prophesied that Judas was going to do it. So what um, I know it's I know it's complicated to wrap your head around this. It, it's it's a complicated argument, and it's difficult for me to try to explain it. But it's it's like this: Christ is proving his 100% track record in being able to keep his sheep. He says, "I am so." faithful at keeping my sheep, that even the person that seems got away, he actually didn't get away. He was just fulfilling the scripture. I knew from the start, I knew from the start that that he was the son of perdition. I didn't lose him. He was fulfilling the scripture. So does that make sense? It, it's, it's Christ saying, I'm so successful at being the shepherd of my flock that even the failure that, that you might point to and say, well, what about Judas? Even the failure? That's not actually a failure. It's just part of, it was just part of the plan. He knew it all along. Okay? So now maybe that troubles your mind a little bit to think, wow, so it was part of the plan that, that Judas was going to do that? That was part of the plan? Part of God's plan? You might sit there and scratch your head and wonder how could that how could that how could that be? That doesn't sound fair. Um, there are two there are two ways to comfort you as you think about that question. Point one is you need to you need to be diligent at reminding yourself that God is perfect and just in everything He does. Everything he does. There are no exceptions. Okay? And if you can learn to stand on that rock, lots of your questions will, will solve themselves. To say, I don't know, but God does. Okay? The second thing. The second thing. For what did Judas betray Christ? He betrayed him for money. He betrayed him for cash. Silver. 
If you had asked Judas on the night that he was about to betray Christ, if you had asked him, Judas, do you want to do what you're about to do? You know what Judas would have said? He would have said, yeah, I want the cash. I want the cash. So what? the way that that helps me in answering this question is it helps me realize, oh, it's not like Judas's arm was being twisted against his will. Judas betrayed Christ because he wanted to. He wanted to. So, hopefully that helps. But now I want us to stop and think about this for, for a quick minute. It says that there was a Judas Iscariot who was lost. There was a Judas Iscariot who was lost. And think about that. There was no one closer with Christ. It was one of the twelve disciples. Out of everyone that looked like they were in, that guy looked like he was in. He looked so real. He looked so legit. He heard all those sermons. He saw all the miracles. He was even sent out with the other guys to go preach. If anybody looked like they were in, it was him. And he got lost? He was lost? That's incredible. Do you know what that should do for you and me? We run up against that and we check our hearts. And we say, why am I in this? Because the story of Judas Iscariot tells me there is no experience, there is no proximity to Christ that anybody could have. There is no office or position that anyone could hold in a church that can replace an actual, an actual taking hold of Christ by faith. So does that make sense? doesn't matter how close in proximity you are to Christ. If it didn't reach your heart, if you're not actually holding the Christ, didn't mean anything. Didn't mean anything. So that's the, that's the first like scary check. That's a scary check. Why am I in this? Because if anybody looked real, it was Judas. And he obviously wasn't real. So why am I in it? But here's the main part. The, the main part of verse 12 is Christ is hammering home. I haven't lost one of my sheep. I haven't lost one. The one that looked like he got away didn't get away. He was that way from the start. And so you and I, as we look at that, and as we, as we look inside our hearts and wonder, okay, why am I in this Lord, I love you. I think my intentions are real. I want you for you. I don't want you for what you're going to give me. I want you for you. You're my Lord and you're my God. And I'm going to hold fast to you. Would you help me make my intentions real? You just get honest with the Lord. And then what happens as you do that, and as you look at verses like verse 12, you just think, that's right, and if I'm one of yours, if I'm one of yours, Lord, you said you would never let me go. You said you'd never let me go. And then comfort yourself with that. Comfort yourself with that. So that was that was the first that was the first way in which Christ has has um, the 
I'm sorry, this was the first way in, in which Christ has begun his work. He had begun to keep his people, verse 12. But not only that, he had also begun to strengthen them with his word. And that's what we read in verse 13. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So, now look at, look at the verse again. Look at the end. What does Christ want his people to have? He wants his people to have joy. First question, what is the use of joy? Why does he want us to have joy? Because if you look at the context in verse 11, he says, Father, keep them. And then in verse 12, he says, I kept them. And then in verse 13, he says, I give them these words that they might have joy. What's the connection between keeping and joy? Now, that's a really good question. What's the connection between keeping and joy? Well, let me answer first with an illustration and then with, um, with a little more expounding. When a mother is on the verge of labor, giving birth to a child, she knows she's about to enter one of the most painful things she's ever going to experience in her life. And it might be a really, really long process. But you know what? There's something on the end of that that she looks forward to. And it puts steel in her backbone to know I can persevere through this. I can do this. That's what joy does. It gives you strength. It gives you strength to persevere in the faith. That's why he wants his Christians to have this joy. That's the connection between the joy and the keeping. Father, keep them. I kept them. I gave them these words that they might have my joy. Well, why, why have the joy? So that you'll keep walking with Christ. So that you can endure when the hard things come. Nehemiah 8.10. You don't have to turn there. Nehemiah 8.10. The joy of the Lord is your strength. It's your strength. The Lord Jesus Christ Himself, it says in Hebrews chapter, 10, uh, Hebrews chapter 12 in verse, in verse 2, it says, for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame. It was the joy, the joy ahead that enabled him to endure the cross. So that's the connection here in verse 13. Christ hasn't changed subjects. He, he hasn't started talking about, Father, keep them. I kept them. He's just continuing right along to say, I did something to make sure that they would have, that they would have the strength to to persevere on in this. So, um, oh, here's, a, here's, a, here's a sentence. So Christ hasn't worked to fill us with joy merely for the sake of being happy. He has filled us with joy because there's a use for the joy. 
to grow us in our endurance. That makes sense. So, notice the source. Okay, that was the use of the joy. Now look at the source of the joy. Where does it come from? But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. So one, it's Christ's joy. It's Christ's joy. Where do you get your joy? Where do you get your joy? That they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. But there's another source. Verse 13 again. But now I come to you in these things I speak in the world. I speak. I speak. Well, in other words, Christ has spoken words. He has given his words that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Well, what words are those? Potentially the words of chapter 17, this prayer. He's praying this prayer out loud so that we would hear the prayer and that we would have his joy fulfilled in us. Potentially the words of verses 14 through 16, which was his teaching of the disciples before chapter 17, and we read those and have his joy fulfilled in ourselves. You can look at chapter 15 and verse 11 for that cross-reference. But you know what's also true is it doesn't matter if it's the Gospel of John. It doesn't matter if it's Genesis or Zephaniah. Every word of God is meant to instill joy in us for our endurance in the faith. Every word of God is meant to instill joy in us for our endurance of the faith. So, there are three things that I want us to consider about that. The first point is this. It is the word of God that is the center of Christian ministry. The word of God is the center of Christian ministry. Notice, Christ didn't say, I performed a miracle that they would have my joy fulfilled in themselves. That's not what he said. He said, I spoke to them that they would have my joy fulfilled in themselves. You look down at verse 6 in the same chapter. What did Christ give them? They have kept your word. Look at verse 8. For I have given to them the words which you have given to me. Look down at verse 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Even in this one chapter, we see Christ, the center of Christ's own ministry is the word. So what that means is that any preacher who stands behind a pulpit and tries to minister without the word is not doing Christian ministry. He's doing something else. Did that make sense? It's the word. Christ's. Christ gave words, His words, 66 books of the Bible to instill us with joy for our endurance. Okay, So, point number two. That means that true joy is not grounded in anything less than truth. He gave us words that our joy might be in it. Those words convey truth. They mean something. He taught them deep doctrine. He, he taught them theology. He gave exhortation. He rebuked them for their sin. He encourages them when they're down and out. All of those truths of the Word of God are meant to instill upon us 
the joy that we need for our endurance. It's truth. Some people, some people can be tempted. You and I can be tempted to place our joy in experiences. In experiences. But guess what? Experiences wax and wane. They go up and down. They change with the seasons. Sometimes those experiences are good and sometimes they're bad. So what if the, what if the experience changes? But if our joy is grounded in truth, if it's grounded in what's real and substantive, the doctrines of the Bible, then they're everlasting joys. They're everlasting joys. Third point. Christian joy is grounded in the Word. That means we need to find it in the Word. Well, how do you find it in the Word? You listen to it carefully. Listen to it carefully. You you take time to read it carefully. You, You work hard to believe it. You work hard to keep it and to obey it. What I'm saying is that when Christ gives the Word, you have to do something with it in order for it to instill joy in you. You can't just sit back and think, oh, well, hopefully this is somehow going to magically cure my problem of joylessness. That's not going to happen. You, you, you have to read it. Actively, you have to hear it actively. You have to obey it and believe it actively. This is it's, it's calling you, calling me to come and to, and to give heed to the word. You know that phrase, that phrase of the Lord? He says often in the Gospels, he says, He who has ears to hear, what? Let him hear. You have ears? And therefore, a purpose to hear. To hear. So if you right now just kind of take an introspection into your own life and you think, well, where is my Christian joy? How come I'm just not happy in the Lord? Why is it that I am losing my endurance in this race for faith? Where is the joy? Maybe the first question you need to ask yourself is, are you giving heed to the Word? Are you reading it, steeping yourself in it? Are you, are you taking time to listen to it carefully? Are you taking time to meditate on it? To memorize it? Are you working hard to believe it? The fourth reason, or the third reason for prayer. The third reason... Uh, in order for this prayer request to be answered. Okay, let me, let, me, let me back up a little bit. We've seen verse 11, this prayer request. Keep them in your name. Keep them in your name. Verse 12, because I've already kept them. Verse 13, keep them because I have, I have already equipped them to help them persevere in the faith. Now, here's, here's the third reason why they need keeping. Because there's a world that hates them. There's a world that hates them. We read this in verses 14 through 16. I have given them your word, 
And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So what we have here is the end of the sandwich. You remember our sandwich? Verse 11, keep them. Verses 12 and 13, here are the reasons for it. Well, actually, verse 14, here are the reasons for it as well. Verse 15, keep them again. That's our sandwich. Um, and in the third reason why they need to be kept, as we've already mentioned, is that there's a world that hates them. Look at verse 14. And the world has hated them. The world has hated them. Now, we who are believers face the trial of a lifetime. The trial of a lifetime. That is the hatred of the world against us. And I'm going to explain that a little bit because it sounds kind of hyperbolic. But when, but when your friends sneer at you for your faith or take a jab at you for, for wanting to adhere to, to the Word of God, they're not doing that to just make you uncomfortable. There's a purpose behind that. They want you to stop. They want you to shut up. Or they want you to turn back and just go with them again. The hatred of the world for our souls is the battle for our souls. And when there's this battle for our souls, that's why Christ prays, keep them. Keep them, because they're in danger. Not just keep them physically. Okay, Christ isn't praying, preserve them from ever experiencing discomfort. He's not praying that. He's praying, preserve their souls from being destroyed. Um, let, me, let me give you a couple of examples here. First, the first danger that we might experience, you see down there in verse 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. The evil, the evil, the evil. Keep them from the evil. I think that's speaking both of the world, primarily of the world, but also has implications for the devil. Okay, Speaking primarily of the world, but implications for the devil. And if you were to look in Ephesians chapter 6, in the section on the, on the armor of God, if you're familiar with that passage, one of the words that Paul uses is he says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Have you ever stopped to think about that word wrestle? Why does he use the word wrestle? Why not use the word fight? Or why not use the word battle it out? We wrestle because when you wrestle, you're grabbing the guy right there. You're staring him in the face. And it's very personal. It's very personal. In our battle with the devil, isn't like a battle, um, isn't like a missile being sent from a drone somewhere. 
It's the guy looking you in the eyeball. So wrestle. Wrestle. Wrestling for your soul. Wrestling for your soul. That's why Christians need to be preserved. Because the devil is right after the soul, up close and personal. But also, there's this danger from the devil's children. The world. The world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Man, my time is gone. But I want to... I'll just end uh, with, with these points quickly. If you, can, if you can hang with me for a couple minutes, let's, uh, let's try to wrap this up. Look at verse 14. What's the cause of this hatred? Why does the world hate the children of God? Well, it says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. They aren't of the world. In fact, they're like Christ, just as I am not of the world. They're not of the world. They're like Christ. That's the cause of this hatred. So now in this, in this there is a rebuke. Okay, there's a rebuke. A rebuke in this way. Because when you and I interact in the world, I'm sure you've experienced this. I know I've experienced this. What I will try to do sometimes is try to blend right in with the rest. I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to get anybody upset. I don't want to stand out on a limb. So instead of letting my light shine, just blend. Just blend right in. You can't do that, child of God. You can't. We can't afford to do that. It says in verse 14, we're not of the world. Embrace it. It it says in, in Ephesians chapter 5, we are children of light. We're children of light. And the very nature of light is that it looks different from darkness. The only use of light is when light shines. So let's be done with hypocrisy. Let's be done with the fear of man. Let's be done with with worrying about rocking the boat. It says in Acts chapter 17, do you know what they said of the Christians? They said, these people have turned the world upside down. That's rocking the boat. That's rocking the boat. These people have turned the world upside down. And it wasn't because of who they were. It's because of who Christ was and how he was willing to use those people. So embrace the fact that you're not of the world. And then be encouraged because of what he prays in verse 15. Christ and his Father are going to keep you. They're going to keep you. So you can afford to shine as the light. You can be brave. You can be bold. We can open our mouths. We know that he can, we know that he can keep us. And that's the, that's the third point. That was the rebuke. And then the comfort is he's going to keep us. 
I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. Notice, the solution isn't just take these Christians out of here, take them up to heaven. He wants us here for a purpose. So what does he want instead? That you should keep them. That you should keep them from the evil one. And here's the thing. Being kept in the world. I thought of, I thought of this illustration. Do you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? These, these three Hebrew exiles who were taken away to Babylon. The king of Babylon sets up this massive tower. An idol, an image of man. It says, when you hear the music, you bow down and worship that. And the Hebrews said, no, we will not. We will serve the Lord, come what may. So he takes these three guys and he throws them in the fire. You know the, you know the story. Throws them in the fire. You know who was with them in the fire? One like the Son of God. In the fire. In the fire. When the world is compassing you, getting you to shut up, getting you to turn back, getting you to, to leave your Jesus behind, you know who's going to be with you in the pressure? He will. In Psalm 23 it says, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Not, I'll meet you on the other side, with you through the valley of the shadow of death. Let me close with this story because it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful story. You need to know it and it will encourage your heart. I know, I know we've gone along today. But uh, there was a gentleman by the name of Thomas Cranmer. And he lived during the English Reformation. And um, during that time, he was kind of a big shot in the Church of England. And in his heart, he was turning away from Catholicism toward the Protestant doctrines of the Gospel that we believe here in this church. We believe in the Protestant doctrines of the Gospel. And this guy, Thomas Cranmer, was was doing that. He was turning away from his Catholicism and turning to biblical Christianity. And he was experiencing this pressure, this great amount of pressure. Cranmer, you need to stop. You need to stop. And you need to turn back to your Catholicism. And you know what happened? He did. He signed, signed a document saying, I'm done with my Protestant gospel. I'm done with it. And then, the guys that forced him to do that came to him and said, well, we're going to execute you anyway. And so do you know what Cranmer did? His conscience smote him. And he was convicted by the Holy Spirit of God. And he returned once again, to the biblical gospel. And they tied him to a stake. They burned him alive. And with that hand that he signed the document, he put that hand in the fire first. Because when he, 
when he turned away from the gospel with that hand, he was going to inflict punishment on it and make a symbol out of it. So he died a true believer. He died a true believer. And the reason why that story is so wonderful is because that's the fulfillment of this prayer. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Keep them. Verse 12, I kept them. John chapter 6 says, Well, I shouldn't lose one. Not one. Not one. Even if they try to run away. Even if they turn back to, the, to Catholicism, I'm going to take their heart and I'm going to bring them right back. It's not getting away. That's the Christ we serve. He's going to keep you. He's going to preserve you. We could do anything for Him. We could do anything for Him. If we'll just believe Him. So let's pray. Lord, thanks so much for Your words. Thanks so much for Your willingness to keep us and to save us, to help us in our weaknesses. Each one of us here is but flesh and blood who are so prone to fear, so prone to wonder, so prone to doubt and faithlessness. But You are the Good Shepherd and You will not let Your people go. Lord, I pray that if anyone here is, is, not one of, is not one of yours, oh Lord Jesus, would you go after them today and bring conversion. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Let's uh, stay seated and, and sing number 321 together. Number 321, number 321, it is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say it is well it is well with my soul it is my soul it is well it is well with my soul though Satan should buffet though trials should come let this blessed assurance control
that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought my sin not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more praise the Lord praise the It is well, it is. 